Today's sermon text is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Reminders serve a, a good purpose in all of our lives uh, that make sure we don't miss important events or information. Uh, they're so important, there's a whole industry designed just to make sure we remember things, remember where to be. Think of like Google and Outlook uh, calendars. There's apps on our phones. There are probably even apps that remind us to set up reminders for ourselves to do something at some point in the future. Uh, <laughs> if it weren't for such, such things, some of us may miss uh, baseball games, doctor's appointments, uh, birthdays, all sorts of important uh, things for some of us. They even remind us that we're not supposed to miss our anniversaries and to buy anniversary gifts, all right? Maybe some of you have forgotten, um, but the fact that you're still here with us today is a good thing if you have forgotten. Uh, <laughs> on a personal level, I wish I had a reminder uh, last Tuesday as I was about to slide into home plate with uh, shorts on, uh, like something would have beeped or electrocuted me uh, to, to tell me to stop, but uh, it didn't. Um, so I slid in and I'm feeling the effects, the painful effects uh, of it today. All this to say, reminders are important in all of our lives, all right? Something we see also throughout the scriptures. The Bible is replete uh, with reminders. Think of all the times the scriptures uh, call us to recall the uh, Isra Israelites' exodus from Egypt, this central salvific act in the Old Testament in which God revealed his saving character to his people. Think of also all the times the Bible um, calls God's people to recall uh, their obedience to him, that they are to walk in loving obedience to a holy God. All right? One of the matters that's often reminded to them is sexual immorality, especially uh, throughout the Old Testament, particularly as I want to point out uh, right now. A glance at Israel's history, however, shows how often they fell in this particular sin and failed to walk in the holiness that God's re God requires of his people. Think of the golden calf incident uh, in Exodus or when Israelite men indulged in sexual immorality with the Moabite women in the book of Numbers. Like these, there are various examples throughout the Old Testament of how God's people fell into sin, ignoring the very important and frequent reminders to walk in holiness because they serve a God who is holy. Now in our text today, 
Paul does something similar. He's going to remind us. He's going to remind us of how we are to walk in a manner pleasing to God. All right? Some might call this uh, an interim ethic that is since Jesus has come, we're to obey him until he returns. Sort of, it actually goes much farther back than that, going all the way back to the Old Testament. What Paul does is he ties our history to that of the Israelites. That is, we too, like Israel, as the one people of God, obey him. We obey these things, these laws, these commandments, going all the way back to Moses, which exhort God's people to love God and to love one another. What is new that was different that the old covenant people did not have, that is, we now have the Spirit. So now we can do, through loving obedience, willful loving obedience, that which was so hard for them to do under the old covenant, that is, obey, out of a willing heart. Now, while the tendency is often to put distance between us and the Old Testament or us, the New Covenant people, and the Old Covenant people uh, in the Old Testament. The fact is, we are one people, the one people of God who share a history with people like Abraham, Moses, and David. We worship the one God who promised that he would save his people through the Messiah. We're just now living in the fulfillment of those times. So as God's people, we like those under the old covenant, only now with the Spirit are enabled to obey God. So just to put this passage today in context in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 through 12. So last week, Tom ended with 3, 11 through 13, which call us to increase our love for one another in view of the return of Jesus. Then if we look ahead in our text to 4, 13, uh, 5 through 11, we see that Paul now explains these matters related to Jesus' return, like the resurrection, judgment, final salvation. I'll leave that to Tom uh, to flush all that out for you guys uh, in the coming weeks. All right? Now, in between these sections is a reminder to please God. That is, Jesus is returning. He is coming back. We want to be found um, in loving obedience to God and in loving obedience to one another. That is loving God and one another. Because, like it says in 5, 6 through 7, we want to be found awake and sober, not asleep and drunk. But since we have a tendency to forget, just like the Israelites, Paul sees the need to remind us of our call to live in obedience, to live in holiness like our God in 4, 1 through 12. And that's our text uh, for today. And as Paul begins this passage, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you should do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In this text, we see already that for Paul, following Jesus is not just an intellectual assent to certain doctrines. It does involve that. Indeed, you can't be a Christian without believing, for example, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But those who believe those things, we now have a new standard of ethics, how we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And notice this important idiom that Paul uses here. It's the word walk, all right? 
This term is used in Deuteronomy 6, for example. It calls God's people to obedience, not any one particular area of their lives, like religious meetings or events. It's really a catch-all term for obedience in every single manner, way, and aspect of our lives. That is, at all times, every place, everywhere, we are to walk in loving obedience to our God, all right? That means there's no place where we can avoid pleasing God. There's nowhere we can get away, nowhere we can hide or separate ourselves. There's not this corner little sin that we can tuck away somewhere and hide in which no one knows about, But you know, because you know what? God sees it. God knows it. He's called us to walk in holiness, not when we're together, just when we're together, or with our families or friends when we're seen, but at all times, whether we're seen or unseen, whether it's some kind of Christian activity or service or not, at work, in the office, at home, everywhere. Every aspect is to be devoted to walking or following after God in obedience. But when it comes to the Thessalonians, look what Paul says. He says, just as you are doing. That is, they are doing these things. By God's grace, they are trying to follow him in loving obedience. They are walking in holiness. So why the reminder? Because Paul knows, right? Paul's a good Jew who believes in the promises of a Messiah. He understands the history of God's people. He knows their failings. So he sees the importance of reminding us again and again of what we're called to do. That is this call to obedience. And the remainder of this passage Paul will now unpack what it looks like to follow God, really in one particular area, which could be applied to other areas as well, but the the one area he's going to really harp on is sexual immorality. He's going to give us now in verse 3 the reason for this reminder, which I've already hinted at already. He said that at the beginning of verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is for you? It's sanctification. That is, that you be holy, that you be like God. That is, you be separate from sin. And the one thing he points out right after this is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's a a loaded term, but just to help us out, the word Paul uses here is porneia. And it really is this catch-all, all-encompassing term for all illicit sexual relations both before marriage and after relations. It really covers the whole gamut, whether you're married, whether you're not married, single, married, um, whatever it is, it applies to all illicit sexual relationships that could occur. Now, when you're thinking of Paul's context, the first century, certainly we have temptations in in our day, and they're all around us, no matter where you look. But let's think for a moment what would have been Paul's context in the first century. As Paul's first century readers dealt with the context in which sex was readily available, promiscuity was common. Let me just give you how F.F. Bruce, probably perhaps the, um, one of the most noted uh, 20th century New Testament scholars, describes the first century situation for Paul and his readers. Here's what he says. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship, The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. That is because a person was property and you could 
have relations with them, whether they wanted to or not, because they were considered yours, all right? Here giving us insight, if you will, to the evil that is slavery, no matter when it occurred in any part of the world. He goes on, while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot, the function of a wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. All right? The general attitude is, and he quotes here Demosthenes um, in his work against Nera, he says, we keep a mistress for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. All right? There were then various expected avenues to find gratification and pleasure outside of marriage. This was the norm. It was expected in everyday life. But contrary to the norms you find outside the church, this was not to be expected of God's people. They had a different ethic that didn't come from a false god, that came from the true God, the one who had delivered Israel in the Old Testament and delivers his people once and for all through Jesus Christ. Because of that, God's people have never been called to follow the sexual norms of the day. We're supposed to be holy, doing that which God pleases. And Paul makes this connection even clearer in the following verses. He says, each one of you is to know how to control his own bodies in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. When he mentions Gentiles, that's not like an ethnic slur or anything, but he mentions Gentiles because the believer's life and practice is not to be grounded with those outside the community of God, those who don't know the true God and the holiness he requires of his people. Instead, though we may not be Jews ethnically, our identity through faith in Jesus, as Abraham expressed faith, think of Romans and Galatians, is tied to the story of believing Israel, in whose family we belong through faith in Jesus, the promised Messiah. If you're looking for a place where Paul explicitly makes his connection, think of 1 Corinthians 10.1, when he calls the Israelite wilderness generation, our ancestors who were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea. The Israelites then are our spiritual ancestors with whom we are God's children. We are God's people who follow the standards, not of a false God, not the gods of this age, but the true and living God whose standards, whose ethics we find so clearly going all the way back to Moses, all the way back to places like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, which can be summarized very simply. That is, loving God and loving others. And we tend, unfortunately, um, or some of us, think of sin as this individualized thing where it only really affects me. I do it, and it's this personal thing, but really it's not. If we see throughout Paul's letters, Sin has a communal effect. It affects those around us. Look at the seriousness with which Paul deals with sexual immorality in verse 4, 6. He says that sexual immorality transgresses and wrongs a brother. Really, that term refers to brother, a brother, or sister. Right? Both are in view here. In other words, it does not show the love that God's people have historically 
been supposed to show to one another. It wrongs them. It abuses them. All right? It sins against them. All right? One particular place where Paul specifically makes this connection is Romans 13. Again, drawing back on the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18, Paul draws a connection between adultery or sexual morality and the command to love. He says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And other commands he also mentions are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So what do we do? For the sake of loving God and also our neighbor whom we wrong, we abstain from adultery or sexual morality. Why? Because sexual morality, it's, it shows no love for others. It's completely self-centered. My desires, my needs, my gratification over and against the harm may cause someone else or others. Right? It has one mission, personal satisfaction. You have an urge, go find it. Go fulfill it. So what Paul does then is he speaks an ethic, a standard that is contrary, not just then the first century, but also today to modern norms of relationships. All right? Which is basically, go for it. You feel it, do it. And why not? You should be able to fulfill your desire or needs with whomever you want. It doesn't matter. Control your body. Pfft, right? That's so puritanical. Uh, don't do that. Go fulfill yourself. All right? You have a need? Go take care of it. Why restrain yourself? That's so out. All right? I'm not saying that. Those are, those are hypothetical uh, questions. Um, <laughs> That's why Paul is so is, the Paul's reminder is so important to us, not just the Thessalonians. Our society is similar to that of the first century. Again, you have a need, there are different avenues, expected avenues, customary avenues in which you can find satisfaction with little consideration for the harm that it may cause others because Paul says this sin transgresses against your neighbor, your brother or your sister. I mean, what good comes out of this? I'm sure we've all, in some capacity, witnessed, unfortunately, the harm that it does to children, to families, uh, extended families, churches. There's nothing good that ever comes out of, of wronging your neighbor. The hope is, yes, restoration. But initially, you see the tragic consequences of what only thinking about yourself brings upon not just one person, but a whole host of other people connected to those involved. But maybe, again, the thought is, no one's going to find out, right? Again, I can keep this personal. I can keep this private. It just, it's just with me. What I'm doing is private, no matter who, what I'm doing or whom I'm seeing or where I'm going. But then we consider Paul's warning. It says in verse 4, 6, The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. All right. This reminds us of what? That we live in loving obedience because Jesus is returning and he's going to make all things right and he will avenge all sins. If we don't feel the repercussions now, we continue in lack of love towards our neighbor in this manner. When Jesus returns, there will be a judgment for all such people. That's why 
like Paul says in verse 7, we must be careful to walk, not in, not in impurity, but holiness. But we all know how difficult this is, how tempting life can be. Can be. Just being outside, just flipping the telephone on or looking at a, at a billboard, social media, just scrolling randomly through the internet. All right? We are constantly reminded or bombarded of society's ethics or lack thereof and our invitation to participate, just like Paul's readers were in the first century. There are these constant reminders, this constant discipleship, if you will, of what's expected of us. So once upon a time, I lived in, in Dallas, Texas, where everything is, is bigger and, and better. Um, that's what they say. If, you, if, you're, if you're from there, um, fine. Um, but... <laughs> I lived there for about six years, uh, about four years of those were married uh, with my wife and my pastor, um, who discipled me and a, and a bunch of others together uh, one year, he would tell us stories of his former students, um, and he had one student um, who was pretty well-known pastor, smart guy, great, great family, um, witty, intelligent charismatic, uh, he started going to seminary, making the drive uh, from the Denton area all the way to, to Dallas. If you've lived in the DFW area, you know there's one, there's one highway that goes from Denton all the way to the seminary in, in Dallas. And along the way, you've got all kinds of enticements and billboards enticing you to do things that are not in keeping, if you will, um, with the standards that God calls his people to, that is, holiness. But there, it seems like every two, three, five miles, there's one billboard for one place off the side of the road, and this is on the way to seminary. Um, and that happens every day. We all knew it. Um, our pastor told us about it. He warned us about it, but we went. But there was a friend of his, a st former student of his, um, who was making the drive. Again, great ministry, great family. Um, seemed like he had it all together. After a while of so much time driving, one day he decides to pull over um, and go to one of these places as he was enticed by all kinds of things around him. Um, and that happened more and more frequently until um, eventually he was just engrossed in this, in this particular lifestyle. Um, his wife finds out, I won't go into the details of it, but it was, it was sexual immorality. His wife finds out and... You see the effects of what sexual morality does, the wrong it brings, the sin it brings to your neighbor. I mean, family, kids, extended family, church, gone, um, leaving all kinds of ruin uh, in his wake. Uh, I'm not sure what's happened uh, since then, but in that example, I mean, I saw, I think we see the painful effects of sin in this particular, particular case that sexual immorality brings, not just on one person, not personal, but it really is the corporate. You really have these corporate effects of sin. And like this example, I'm sure we know others. We also know examples of other enticements that we face on a daily basis. It makes it hard. It makes it hard to follow God in loving obedience as Paul calls us to. That's why in 4.8, we have a very important reminder. That is, God gives us his Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit whom we're not to disregard, but 
whom we are to listen. And why is this so important? Because Paul kind of just tacks this on at the end of the verse. But again, think of Paul's history. Think of who Paul is. He's a good Jew who believes in Jesus. He understands the history and promises of God's people. And he talks about the Spirit. Under the Old Covenant, recall, it was so difficult for God's people to obey. So the prophets who look back on things like the exile because of disobedience, they look forward to a day when God would send his promised Holy Spirit. Look at Ezekiel 36, 27. Just listen to it with me. Um, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. All right. Notice how Ezekiel uses the future tense, I will give. Whereas Paul says, he gives the spirit to us. Since Christ has died to establish a new covenant, we live in the fulfillment of these days. All right. We are now indwelled with the promised spirit, all right? And Paul continues to unpack what this looks like in verses 9 through 10. He says that really the Thessalonians have no reason to be written, that Paul's no reason to write to them about loving brothers and sisters in the faith, for they have been taught by God, all right? Paul's not saying that he doesn't need, they don't need instruction, all right? What he's saying is they're living out what for example, the psalmist and the prophets look forward to. Listen to Psalm 16:7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. And Isaiah, who looked forward to the day when God would make all his sons and daughters taught by God. So what Paul's saying is that not they don't, that they don't need instruction. They have some special wisdom or gnosis or knowledge that others don't know about. And Paul has no reason to teach them. No, what happens is Paul is pleasantly surprised that the Spirit is working among them to love their brothers and sisters. And one of the ways they're doing this is by not taking advantage of one another in sexual immorality, not sitting against each other in this particular manner. They are yielding to the Spirit's leading or teaching something which they're to do until the return of Jesus Christ. Now, like them, Thessalonians, We too have the promised spirit through faith in Jesus. We have God's very spirit leading us, teaching us, and empowering us to loving obedience, giving us the power to deal with sins like sexual morality and others that so commonly beset us or are all around us, enticing us. So what I want to do now is, what does it actually look like? What are some practical ways in which the spirit leads his people, teaches, leads, and guides his new covenant people. I'm going to apply them as Paul does in this passage to how we handle our bodies, but they also apply to other avenues as well. So first and foremost, I would say the Spirit prompts us to read the Scriptures, all right, to see what God's Word says, all right. He gives us a desire, even though this might not be this overwhelming desire, if there's at least a thought or an inkling, you can thank God's Spirit for that, for prompting you Uh, to be in the scriptures. Now, we may deny that. We may claim we're too busy, but the fact that we're being reminded, all right, that's a work of grace by the Spirit. And in these scriptures is where we find that we are the one people of God who are called to holiness. Second, the Spirit reminds us of what we know to be true in the scriptures about matters like sexual immorality. So when we're tempted say, if we're single 
or we're married and we're tempted to fall into sexual morality with someone other than our spouse, we're reminded of, of chapters like Exodus 20, Leviticus 20, which apply to all of God's people throughout history, which call us to abstain from sexual immorality. All right? And if we have doubt about that, we, th- we can think of the apostolic council in Acts 15, which, will, which applied the prohibition to sexual morality to new converts who were not ethnic Jews. In other words, it applies to new covenant believers. But also, I think it applies not just in areas related to those, uh, physically that is, to those who aren't married or are married, um, it applies in, I would say, another important area uh, as well. Uh, all the way back in 2002, uh, John Piper preached a sermon on this very passage. And he talked about how, this is, again, all the way back in 2002. Some of you may not have been bor- been born at that time. Um, I was in college back then. Uh, feels longer than I thought a moment ago. Um, but he says, it's been told to me that pornography is a problem on cable TV and the internet, and it's rampant, and it's everywhere. And yes, it was. And could you imagine what it's like today as things are more readily available, not just having to sit down at a PC, but a laptop on a phone? It's everywhere. All right? When we're tempted by such things, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit reminds us. He convicts us of what the Scriptures say. All right? hopefully leading us to turn and repent from such things because the Spirit calls us and He convicts us to live in holiness. Third, the Spirit prompts us to encourage one another to persevere in holy living, right? This is what we see Paul doing in 1 Thessalonians 4. How do we do this? We can invite a friend out to lunch, to coffee, to to tea, if if you're into that, Um, Ask them, how are you doing? How's your marriage? Are you succumbing to temptation? These are important questions the Spirit prompts us to ask one another, showing showing loving care for our brothers and sisters in the faith. So if you're a man, you can invite a fellow man or friend uh, out to lunch or coffee. If you're a woman, invite a fellow woman uh, out to lunch or coffee or, or over to your home and ask them how they're doing and inquire of them out of loving interest interest and concern for how they're actually doing in this area. But here's what I'd recommend. Uh, Don't just launch in. Don't make it the first question that you ask. Just talk a little bit. I had a friend I had not seen in in 10 years. saw him at a a conference a couple years ago. And the first thing he asked me is, how's your purity? And I thought, wow. It's like, you know, I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, How are you doing? Anyway, he's great. It's his personality, but just just talk to people first, right? Just use your best spirit-led judgment as you show concern for your brother or sister in the faith. Fourth, the spirit also prompts us to repent. Um, Let's say through a friend's uh, inquiry or in prayer um, or just in your thoughts one day. If you're convicted of your sin, let's say you are falling into sexual morality, uh, whether physically or whether through um, pornography, he, te- he convicts us of our sin and to confess, perhaps to those whom we've, we've offended, um, and to go speak to a pastor as we work through what it's like to 
repent and turn from this particular sin and move towards holiness in this area, but also other possible areas as well. The Spirit convicts of our sin and leads us to repentance and restoration. Hopefully, um, while hard at first, really undoing and working through the difficulties of the damage that sin does cause both individually and corporately. But in all these, all these things, just like Israel, um, who was led through a cloud by day uh, and fire by night, we have the Spirit, and we have the choice to accept His leading or teaching or to reject it, right? The goal is that we would receive or accept His leading or teaching so that together as a church, we might live lives pleasing to God in lieu of the fact that Jesus is returning. He's coming back, all right? Remember the following passage. He is returning. He's going to make all things right. We want to make sure that by God's Spirit, by His aid, we are living and walking in holiness. And as we close out the passage, all right, Paul calls us to continue in our love for one another, to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our own hands, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, all right? What does this mean? We think of this in light of our calling to loving obedience in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And because he's returning, it does not negate our responsibility to faithfulness or trusting in him and loving our brothers and sisters in every day of our lives. I think Richard Hayes uh, sums up Paul's concern well here. A New Testament scholar, he says, the eschatological hope should leave them, that is the Thessalonians and us, uh, neither in a state of passivity nor in a state of fevered striving. Instead, they should acknowledge that God is at work among them, preparing them for the day of the Lord precisely through the works of love that characterize their common life. Why? Because it is through continuing faithful, loving service to one another and to our God that we show that we're ready for Christ's return, right? We're not to be anxious. We're not to be sitting around idly speculating about the end, when it's coming, how it's coming. He's coming, right? We see it throughout the scriptures. We are called to be ready, all right? It also doesn't mean that we don't provide for those in need. It means that everyone's called to do their, their part as Christians because when the world sees us in such loving uh, posture towards one another, with such security about the future, not fretting, not anxious, no matter what's going on, no matter what the pandemic, all right, still exercising loving concern for one another, loving deference towards one another, what do they see? They see something different. They see God's character revealed in us, which hopefully draws us to worship the God whom we serve. Who is coming back? And we know it, and we live securely in that. That's why we continue in our loving obedience and care for one another and deference towards one another, regardless of what's going on around us. Our lives, then, are powerful witnesses to the God we claim to serve. So in view of this passage, just to, just to close us out, what should we take? We should take Paul's reminder to heart. That is, we're to walk in obedience, knowing that whether Jesus comes today or tomorrow, or whenever, he's to find us living lives obedient to him as God's people have always been called to live. 
And we're not alone in doing this because we have the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us, who teaches us, who prompts us, who convicts us of sin. He reminds us of all that God has said so that we can face Jesus' return with joyful expectation. And hopefully, through our example, we might be used to draw others to believe and trust and follow the God who is returning and will one day make all things right. Let's pray.